Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Well, hi, Karen. How are you? I am doing well. And you? Good. I feel like the summer just flew by and we hardly talked. I know. It's been busy. Yeah, I think we're running a little late on uh, on podcasts, so... Hopefully, we'll get this one up soon. So um, we have three things. I'm going to talk about Marine Galeef, uh, a newer systematic review that was published. You're going to talk about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine update on mastitis protocol. And then I'm going to talk about uh, infant caries. So um, I will start with a brief report that was published in the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal uh, volume 9, um, number 6 in 2014, on Moringa oleifera, which is also known as Moringa leaf tree. Um, the authors of this review are Peter Francis Ragenden, uh, Leonella Dans, and Jacelyn King. And uh, they start out by, by saying that Moringa is a small, thin tree that's native to India, but grown in largely tropical areas. It has highly nutritious properties, and the leaves, seeds, and fruit are typically eaten in areas where it's grown. So it's sort of like one of these superfoods that um, is grown in areas where it's sort of like a food desert or nutrition is um, at risk. The leaves are the part of the plant that's lactogenic, and the leaves are also considered non-toxic because they're eaten like other green vegetables like kale and spinach. Um, it's been studying the most in the Philippines, and it's the most common galactagogue used in the Philippines, where it, the lactogenic properties of the leaves were first described by a scientist in 1987. And this article is basically a systematic review on the use of Moringa compared to placebo um, as a galactagogue. So this is a pretty brief report. Um, they found six randomized, placebo-controlled, blinded clinical trials on Moringa, five of which were done in the Philippines. And essentially, putting the studies together, it appears that Moringa increases milk volume by day seven, anywhere from 90 to 159 ml per day, which is pretty good, considering that it's day seven. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They mention that Moringa is hypothesized to increase prolactin production in the anterior pituitary. And two of the studies in this review compared prolactin levels in the Moringa versus placebo groups and found that prolactin levels were higher in the Moringa group. Um, they, so I thought that was interesting because I, I feel that we don't really know how different herbs and supplements work other than the prescriptions, metoclopramide mm -hmm. and domperidone, which we know increase prolactin levels. And I feel like by knowing that Moringa increases prolactin, I have a better idea of who to respond and who wouldn't. Because right now, 
there are obviously people who respond well because I prescribe it a lot, and there are people who don't respond at all. And I oftentimes hypothesize who would do well with a prolactin boost, and now I feel like I'll use it for people who I think need a prolactin boost. Um, the studies mostly gathered evidence of side effects based on reports from the subjects, and no adverse effects were seen in all six studies. So I suppose um, the leaves are you know, similar to spinach and kale, and people usually don't complain of side effects of spinach or kale other than perhaps not liking them, <laughs> um, especially younger children. Um, but uh, yeah, so other, but basically it's safe. And that's been my experience too when I prescribe it. Um, people generally uh, don't notice any side effects on it. So it's a good one to use. And, and they're, they're, um, they're taking the leaves and they're putting them into a pill. Yes, they're capsules. I was going to say, so just, you know, for people who haven't used it, they're, you know, they're, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't like kale and spinach. You don't have to taste it. Right, exactly. And, you know, like any supplement, it may, the company, you know, nothing's regulated in the United States. And so you may end up with a product that's inferior and a product that's good quality. And it's good to use resources like consumer labs to make sure that the brand is is um, considered valid. Yeah, it's a trusted company. I right, agree. right. So, um, so let's move on and have you talk about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine protocol and mastitis. So, um, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine uh, clinical protocol number four on mastitis was revised in March of 2014 um, by Lisa Amir, and um, this protocol is not too long because I feel like mastitis is um, pretty well understood and straightforward, and so I think it's um, good for us to go through it, and most people will probably be familiar with most of the recommendations, and then I have a question for you. So um, first, I just wanted to remind everyone the definition of mastitis is a hot, tender, swollen um, breast usually in a wedge-shaped area that can be red, and um, it's associated with a fever of 38.5 Celsius or 101.3 Fahrenheit or higher. Um, and also, by definition, mastitis simply means inflammation of the breast. This can be um, infectious or it cannot. And the author makes a point of saying that Engorgement through mastitis appears to be on a continuum because blocked or plugged ducts can cause an area of the breast to be hot, tender, swollen, and red. Um, And as that um, gets worse frequently, then women will have fever, fatigue, body aches, um, those symptoms that I think of clinically as um, infectious mastitis. Mm Mm-hmm. The uh, predisposing factors are primarily those that are um, associated with milk stasis. Um, There is an association with the damaged nipple, especially if it's colonized with staph aureus. Um, But otherwise, infrequent feedings or um, scheduled feedings or short feedings, missed feedings, poor attachment or inefficient removal of milk, illness in the mother or baby, oversupply, rapid weaning, pressure on an area of the breast, such as from a tight bra, um, 
And the white spot on the nipple or a blocked nipple pore, um, sometimes called a bleb or a milk blister, as well as maternal stress and fatigue, which I think is sort of a, a cyclic problem that you're going to have. Um, laboratory investigations and other diagnostic procedures are not normally needed. The World Health Organization publication on mastitis suggests that breast milk culture and sensitivity testing um, should be undertaken if there's no response to antibiotics within two days, there's recurrent mastitis, um, the there's hospital-acquired mastitis, or if there's an unusual case or a patient who has allergies, which make it difficult to um, decide what antibiotic therapy to use if antibiotic therapy is warranted. So if you're going to do that, for those um, who have not done a breast milk culture, um, it's done by hand expressing um, breast milk and then doing what's called a midstream clean catch where you let the first few drops of milk that have come out of the breast go without collecting them because they sometimes are contaminated. Um, even if you have first cleaned the breast with um, alcohol or another um, antiseptic agent and then um, catching that that's expressed afterwards. And I often find that moms who are experienced in hand expressing do a much better job of hand expressing it than I do um, when I'm trying to catch in clinic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Although I, I, I do it better than they do. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly collecting them. I say, nope, I'm going to do it. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, you know, I just sort of see how it goes. It depends. Some of them are great, and then I'm like, oh, look. Um, and some of them, not so much. So... Um, when it comes to management, the first line management, especially if this is caught early, is um, effective emptying of the breast. So encouraging more frequent feeding, um, starting on the affected breast because um, the breast that a baby eats on first is generally um, emptied more fully than the second breast. And they note that if pain is a problem, um, that's inhibiting letdown, the baby can start on the opposite breast, and once letdown starts, to switch the baby over, um, pointing the chin or nose toward the area that's affected because that um, tends to be the area with the most suction when a baby eats, massaging the breast, um, sort of during the feeding, pushing um, the blocked area toward the nipple, and possibly expressing um, any remaining milk by hand or pump after the feeding. Also briefly mentioned in here is an alternate approach for swollen breast, which is breast fluid or it's fluid mobilization. I've also heard it called lymphatic drainage massage, which is gently um, massaging the breast from the nipple um, back toward the axilla um, along the axillary lymph nodes. As the mother reclines, gentle hand motions can um, reduce the swelling of the breast. And this is also sometimes used during um, engorgement. That's different than reverse pressure softening, right? Um, they mentioned, of course, supportive me measures like making sure that mom gets adequate rest and fluids, nutrition, analgesia, um, as well as heat um, before trying to empty the breast can be helpful or 
um, cold packs after to reduce pain and edema. And um, most mothers can be managed as outpatients, although um, occasionally those who are quite ill or require IV antibiotics could possibly need to be hospitalized. Um, then there's a, a section on um, pharmacological management, which you know basically says that if the mastitis is mild and it's been present for less than 24 hours, conservative management that we just talked about is often effect effective. However, if things are not improving or a woman is acutely ill, then um, it's a good idea to go ahead and start antibiotics. The most common pathogen is penicillin-resistant Staph aureus. Less commonly, we see strep or E. coli. There are, of course, sometimes unusual um, bacteria that cause breast infections. Um, but because of those most common ones, we usually want to start with a um, penicillinase-resistant penicillin like dicloxacillin or um, flucoxacillin, 500 milligrams by mouth four times a day, um, and paying attention to your local sensitivities. There isn't really good evidence, but many people recommend a 10 to 14 course. Do you tend to do a longer course? I like I start with um, 10 to 14 days, and then if their pain is not 100% gone, um, mm -hmm. at that point, then I like to see them back and see what's going on. Um, and if their pain is not improving on a daily basis, I like to see them back, you know, whenever they're mm -hmm. worsening or whenever they feel like they're not improving anymore, whether it's day five or day 10 or whenever that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will never forget the mom who I saw for her, I don't know, baby's two-month visit. And at that visit, I was asking about breastfeeding. And she said, well, I'm having some pain. You know, she minimized it. And eventually, when I examined her breast, she had really significant wedge-shaped redness and tenderness and um, proceeded to, you know, start treating her. And then I had her follow up with her OBGYN, I think. And Maybe she didn't get followed up, but something happened so that she came back again for the baby. And I was like, oh, how is, you know, your mastitis? It had been at least a week. And she said, oh, I think it's better. It's really less. And I was like, oh, why don't you let me see it? And she had an abscess. Mm. And it wasn't as big of an area anymore, but it had consolidated down. And she had this you know, really dark red fluctuant area right in the center of where it had, and, you know, she had no idea. Yeah. But, no, this is not better. Yeah. Um, so that close follow-up is certainly really important. It is important, yeah. It sounds like she was maybe a little bit lost between, mm -hmm. you know, not having... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, you I, going, of course are in the fortunate position of being a family <laughs> doc, where you are right there. Um, but I do find that you know often, it's, if you don't know the other provider, coordination of care between peds and OB and the you know internist or whoever, we don't always do a great job. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of women don't um, like have a close if they have an internist, they don't have a close relationship with their primary because the primary hasn't been seeing them for pregnancy and uh -huh. um and then you know postpartum issues and so but then sometimes there's a relative dispassionate relationship between OB and the mother for some reason I don't know 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or just not super comfortable with um, breastfeeding. You know, a lot of yeah. OBs don't, and pediatricians too, don't get great breastfeeding training. And right. so um, the story got worse. I I, um, I called the OB and said, oh, no, she's got mastitis or she's got an abscess. And, you know, can you can you help? And she said, yeah, send her over. And they, I sent her over there, and they said, yes, that's an abscess, and they sent her to the ER oh, to, man. It, uh, to get it drained. And I was like, I guess she just didn't believe me. <laughs> right. Uh, so I learned then after that to really be careful about who I was going to refer patients to that had an abscess. Because right. if people don't have experience with the appropriate management of an abscess, sometimes moms get inappropriate, you know, procedures where they're cutting across the ducts instead of radially. Um, it's really important to know your community. I've gotten, I've learned over time, and eventually that mom did great. Right, right, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Come, come back from my digression. Then. So um, for women who um, may be penicillin allergic, um, cephalexin um, is usually safe, um, or clindamycin in cases of severe penicillin hypersensitivity. And um, occasionally we have to think about MRSA, depending on your community. Um, That's either um, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, or some people call it oxicillin-resistant staph aureus. It is increasingly common. And so um, sometimes if things aren't getting better, um, that is what's going on, and I pre- frequently use Septra um, when I'm in a community that has a high percentage of MRSA. Right. And um, there is a section in here that talks about an association um, about breast pain and candida, which I don't know necessarily goes exactly to um, mastitis, but it talks about sort of this idea that some breast pain is related to candida infection um, and cites some studies that have shown of women with breast pain, they are more likely to have candida than controls. Um, further research is being done in that area, and I think it's been an area of some, some controversy. Um, the other complications that are mentioned are, of course, abscess, which we brief, briefly talked about. Um, it occurs in it's suggested about 3% of women with mastitis and um, frequently can be treated with fetal, either needle aspiration, sometimes serial needle aspiration, IND, or um, ultrasound-guided placement of a, of a duct by interventional radiology, um, depending on what resources you have in your community. And... Um, Lastly, early cessation of breastfeeding is a possible complication with mastitis because um, either women are in pain and they don't get advice or they get bad advice that um, it's not safe to continue breastfeeding, um, but that actually can make things get much worse. So it's important to um, primarily make sure that the breast is being effectively and frequently emptied. Right. Yeah, I think mastitis um, is is sort of a woman's health issue that's somewhat political because um, 
women may have, like a woman may have a fever to 102, and she may call her doctor and say, you know, I have this fever, and my breast is red, and I feel awful. And the nurse takes the message and gives it to the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, call in doxycycline 250 milligrams four times a day, you know, which just makes me cringe. It's such a low dose. And that woman could really be septic. You know, she could really have blood coursing. She could have bacteria coursing through her veins and be very, very ill and be and have a low blood pressure. Now, if a man calls and says to the doctor, I have a fever to 102 and my leg is swollen and red. What happens to that man? That man is either brought into the office, that man is sent to the hospital. And this is one of my soapbox issues where I feel that some of these women become very, very ill, very fast. You know, I've seen them come to my office on the day that they have a fever and looking hypotensive and tachycardic. And I've called the ambulance a couple of times for some of these women. And to think that they're getting phone advice and not really triage properly is quite scary. Um, I I haven't had that experience, but I have had the experience many times of moms who either minimize their symptoms or just don't make the association. I have taken care of a, a number of women who are just like, oh, I feel awful, I have a fever, and they don't mention that they're having a breast you know, problem, that they're having breast pain until I go digging. Right. And they say, oh, yeah, because they just they don't realize that having that infection in their breast is making them so sick and they're so worried about being sick right. that they are like, oh, whatever, my breast hurts. I've got a lot going on. Right. Well, no, well, the way I look at it is that very early mastitis, there's, it's very difficult to see the pink changes because it's very light yeah. pink initially. And they have to go into the bathroom and turn on the light to really see. So and that's some, if they have fair skin. If they're of women of color, it can be nearly impossible. Exactly. And so it's not uncommon for me to talk to a patient on the phone who says, well, I have a fever and I feel awful. And I'll say, well, you know, does your breast hurt? Well, I really don't know. I hurt all over is what they say. And I'll say, now go and look at your breast and see if you have pink changes. And they say, well, I really just don't know. I just can't tell. And it might be because they don't have a good mirror. They don't have a good light. They Their breasts are really big. They just can't tell. And, yeah. you know, they just have to be seen. But so often they really cannot localize it because it's just not that obvious for them. Yeah. Um, and so it is tricky. And that's why, you know, the old adage, flu in a nursing mother is mastitis until proven otherwise, needs to be understood by physicians. Um, yeah. So I think that's why a lot of women will say, yeah, I had a fever, you know, a couple, like two weeks ago. I don't know. It lasted a couple of days and went away. They had mastitis. They didn't even know it. So it does happen a fair, you know, it ha- it definitely happens a fair amount, and that and it's probably based on knowing that that you know we he- those of us as clinicians and Dr. Amir who wrote this protocol knows that women will say this that it, that it seems to be acceptable by many providers to wait 24 hours to see if it goes away because it just ends up happening that way for so many women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. Absolutely true. Um. The other thing that I, I just on a personal note, wanted to mention um, was that I had this patient recently that had granulomatous mastitis, mm-hmm. um, which I had never heard about until I saw this patient, or maybe I learned about it a long time ago, but um, having never had a clinical case, it hadn't really st- stuck with me. And it was this 
story of a mom who had had mastitis that was treated and treated um, with antibiotics and it kept going and she had um, abscess and fistulas and drainage and it continued before I met her and it continued for nine months and eventually um, she had had surgery and the pathology had come back that she had granulomas in her breast and um, you know, maybe someday we'll do a separate podcast on that, but I just mm-hmm. wanted to sort of alert people that it, if mastitis is sterile and it's continuing for a long time, it's something to think about as autoimmune um, granuloma, uh, granulomatous mastitis. And I think biopsy in general, because um, a red breast that doesn't get better, also you have to think about inflammatory breast cancer. So, Absolutely. you know, but so anyone who's not getting better basically needs tissue pathology to figure out what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, so the other question that I had for you is we've got this um um let me try that again. The other question that I had for you was about milk blubs, which were briefly mentioned in here and For whatever reason, I have been seeing just a rash of um, in my clinical practice lately, and I am curious whether um, you find that they are frequently um, recurring in the same places, um, whether or not you find them to be occurring without mastitis frequently, um, and how you're treating them. So um, those, I think of blebs um, as being clogged pores that come from deeper plugs. So these are women who tend to have recurrent plugs, um, and oftentimes they'll give me that history. And they'll mm-hmm. find if they have a milk blub, it'll be painful. They'll also feel like their breast is not draining very well in that area that that pore is associated with. And then they'll pick and pick and pick at it until it um, they can get stuff out of the pore and then then they'll feel like the area of the breast that's not drained well will empty. So um, oftentimes I look at, you know, the underlying reason why they may be having plugs, such as, um, you know, this is really common in women who pump, who mostly pump, because pumping just doesn't drain the breast as well mm-hmm. as nursing, um, or they have an oversupply, or they're going for long periods at night when they're really full, um, or they're pumping extra, you know, during the day and then going log at night, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Like that's messing a, up with their with their rhythm sure. of good, you know, breast drainage. Um, I have been a little bit suspicious of fish oil. Um, a lot of people are taking DHA and fish oil, and I've had some women with recurrent plugs, and I haven't been able to figure out why, and um, I've had them stop fish oil because we know that um, there's something about fatty acids that's different um, or, mm-hmm. you know, the differences in fatty acids in milk may play a role. Um, also, I think it's they're super common when women have um, a, a dysbiosis, you know, over, you know, like the bacterial mm-hmm. balance is off, like low probiotics in their breast. So I we could talk about that. One at- woman lately who just, she, she cannot get rid of it. It's just this one slab and, you know, I went in there and unroofed it and tried to express it out and it just. She cannot get rid of it. And so I was like, we've talked before about steroids and various other things, and I was so frustrated. But you're right. We could talk about it a whole other time. Yeah, we should Yeah, we should talk about milk gloves. There's not much research. We can just talk about our experiences. With, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. 
So, um, okay. We'll have a phone and radio show one day. Yeah, really. So, um, anything else about mastitis? I think that's it. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about uh, infant dental caries, which are also known in the literature as early childhood caries, or ECC is oftentimes how they're abbreviated. This is a confusing topic, and many people who see breastfeeding moms are um, often asked if nursing at night contributes to cavities for their babies. And I know many moms are afraid to tell their dentists that their babies uh, nurse overnight. So the question is, is that okay? Um, there was an, an excellent review of the current literature on early childhood caries in the journal Clinical Lactation. The author was Valerie Levine um, in 2013 in the first issue of that year. So early childhood caries are defined by having missing or decayed primary teeth up to six years of age. And in some high-risk groups in the world, 50 to 80% of children have early childhood caries. The major factors associated with cavities are, first of all, having bacteria in the mouth that produce cavities, specifically two bacteria, one called strep mutans, and the other one is strep sobrinus, S-O-B-R-I-N-U-S. These bacteria usually come from mom's saliva, so they're passed down from mom to baby after birth, like kissing or mom sucks on baby's pacifier or something like that. The bacteria can often be found in the baby's mouth early, even at six months of age, before the baby has teeth. The second um, factor that's often considered causative is eating fermentable carbs in the diet, such as um, white sugar or receiving um, sugary medications on a regular basis. So um, you would think that breastfeeding at night would be a problem, because of the sugar in breast milk, but as it turns out, the carbs in breast milk don't seem to be fermentable like table sugar, so lactose is just not as fermentable, or at least um, that process, the fermentable, pro the fermentation of lactose uh, to lactic acid doesn't seem to be as much of an issue for teeth. Yeah, I think that is an idea that is not well known for sure. Right, right. And so, and then the other, the third major factor in developing cavities is the nutritional and general health status of the child. And uh, the most interesting research in this area is the discovery that early childhood cavities are higher in children whose mothers had, have had or had low vitamin D levels when they were pregnant. And this work was published in the journal Pediatrics in April of 2014 um, by several authors. The first author is Robert Schroth. So in this study, uh, they took 207 pregnant, economically disadvantaged women from Canada and measured the vitamin D levels during pregnancy. They found that 33% had a vitamin D deficiency, um, which I think is amazingly low, <laughs> considering I live in Wisconsin, it seems like everyone's low. My God, the study was done in Canada. That makes perfect sense. Right. Um, they then uh, evaluated the teeth of, their, of these women's offspring and found that the enamel defects were present in 36% of the infants, and they found a direct inverse relationship between the number of decayed teeth and the mother's prenatal vitamin D level. So the higher the vitamin D level, the lower the number of cavities and vice versa. Um, this study found no difference in the number of cavities between bottle feeding or breastfeeding babies. 74% um, of the babies were breastfed, but they didn't say specifically how long these babies breastfed. So they didn't really analyze duration of breastfeeding, breastfeeding at night, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the article also points out that infants 
who have vitamin D fortified diets and more exposure to the sun have less extensive dental caries. So vitamin D plays a huge role, um, not only um, after you know when they when they're eating solids, but also in the in the fetal environment. So it's something that we need to pay attention to, and I I find that. Um, there are certain physicians in our community who are obstetricians who are very enlightened about the need for vitamin D in pregnant women, but the majority of, pregnant, of women who I see in the breastfeeding clinic were never told to take vitamin D during their pregnancy. And I think this is something huh. that we need to pay close attention to, even if it's for nothing other than preventing cavities in their infants. So when moms ask me what I think about the risk of nursing overnight in cavities, I tell them that there's no evidence that we know of, no strong evidence that breastfeeding causes cavities. However, I strongly advise that they brush their children's teeth twice a day, they avoid sugary foods, make sure that the child is receiving a vitamin D supplement as well as, as, well as calcium in the child's diet. And if I have exposure to moms, like oftentimes I do preconception counseling with my with my mothers, with women before they become pregnant and explain to them that vitamin D is super important, not only throughout their lives, which I always emphasize whenever I see them for physicals. All right. Well, so, so it's been good talking to you. It's great talking to you and um, we'll be in touch in the next month. All righty. Thanks, right. Dan. Yep. Bye. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.